0: In this week's episode, we look into the tragic lives of our Hollywood blonde bombshells from the 1950s era. Before Madonna, even before the one and only Marilyn Monroe, the quote-unquote blonde bombshell set Hollywood on fire. It was so much more than the color of one's hair. It was an attitude. It was a lifestyle. It was an era that still lingers today. Jean Harlow would be the platinum blonde bombshell that started it all. Taylor Orsi would write for The Atlantic, quote, Before Harlow, there wasn't such a thing as platinum blonde. Although people using hair lighteners like hydrogen peroxide was nothing new, there was no dye on the market that could make one's hair as blonde as jeans, end quote. Karina Longworth of You Must Remember This podcast says, quote, In Hollywood, blonde women are often blank slates in which viewers are invited to project their own desires. The female blonde can become the female victim, whose promise seems to have been all the more promising when it's cut short, end quote. In our first of this trilogy was the genesis of the Platinum Blonde Bombshell, Season 2, Episode 29. Last week, it was the blondes who got us through World War II and refined the trend. This week, we see how the trend seems to have reached its peak and the slow descent of an era. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Norma Jean Mortenson, sometimes Baker, was born June 1st, 1926. Wait, before we get too far, there is so much information on her very public, very tragic life that it would be an affront to her to try and cram it all into this little segment. Not that each one of these amazing ladies don't deserve their own episode. There is still so much controversy around Ms. Monroe's story, so many different theories on her life and death, it would be an injustice to attempt to condense all the other talented researchers' information and mineral fanatics' theories into one blurb, that it ought not be tempted. So instead, I thought rather than overlooking her completely, which in and of itself would be an insulting, to her being THE 1950s blonde bombshell, I would find bits and pieces about the starlet that might not be known and tie it up with a neat little bio bow. If anyone is super touchy about Ms. Monroe, please skip this part and please do not send hate mail. If it's safe, let us begin. Norma Jean Mortensen was born June 1st, 1926. Taylor Orsi writes for The Atlantic, quote, Jean Harlow was wowing moviegoers with her sultry sexuality and shocking blonde hair when the girl who would become Marilyn Monroe was still in kindergarten, end quote. It was said Marilyn Monroe absolutely loved Jean Harlow and would watch and rewatch her films. She would say, quote, Some of my foster families used to send me to the movies to get me out of the house, and there I'd sit all day and way into the night, up in front there with the screen so big, a little kid all alone, and I loved it, End quote. When the time came, she would campaign to play Harlow in the movie about her idol's life, Apparently, the script was so bad and poorly portrayed Harlow, Marilyn refused to do it. In addition, Monroe later confessed to her agent, quote, I hope they don't do that to me after I'm gone, End quote. Factinate blog post would write, quote, When she was a rising star, Monroe and the studios played upon her looks and created a blonde bombshell persona. Sadly, blonde bombshell is apparently next door to dumb blonde and she began being typecast as just that, which she hated, probably because, in reality, she was actually extremely intelligent, end quote. Not just intelligent, may I add, extremely business savvy, but her ideas and projects were often overlooked. She was born and raised in California, and was passed around to several foster homes. Married at 16 to James Daugherty as something of an arranged marriage, Not surprising, it ended after only four years in 1946. By 1945, she had begun modeling for magazine and in less than a year would appear on the cover of over 33 issues. It was at this time she gave up her natural auburn hair in favor of the platinum blonde. She would also start to be tagged as Jean Norman. She would be signed in August of 1946 by Fox executive Ben Lyon and would then be renamed Marilyn Monroe. Now hold on tight, this is going to go kind of fast. In 1947, she got her first role in the film, Dangerous Years. In 1953, boom, America would see Marilyn Monroe as a star. Niagara, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, How to Marry a Millionaire were big, big hits, and to close out the year, she was chosen by Playboy mogul Hugh Hefner to grace the cover and centerfold of the very first issue of the magazine. While she did not consent to a photo shoot, Playboy was content in releasing some of her older prints, but she would not allow the publication to go through. Could you imagine how much that issue would be worth today? In 1954, she would marry famed New York Yankee Joe DiMaggio and would participate in one of the most successful USO tours for the Marines stationed in Korea. In 1955 came her role in The Seven-Year Itch, which would also bring about one of her most iconic images in Hollywood history, would hit the big screen. You know the one, Marilyn Monroe on the subway grate. She was forever ingrained in the public, but it would cost her the marriage of one man who probably loved her the most purely in all of her life. Her husband hated this new imagery, and the marriage couldn't sustain in her newfound fame. By the end of 1955, she and Joe DiMaggio would divorce, but remain in each other's lives. Side note, for 20 years after Marilyn's death, DiMaggio sent roses to her crypt three times a week. He outlived her by 36 years and would never marry again. It's been said that his last words were of her and something along the lines of, quote, I'll finally get to see Marilyn, end quote. Following the divorce, she would legally change her name to Marilyn Monroe. On june twenty ninth, Marilyn and Arthur Miller were to be married in New York in nineteen fifty six. Everyone in Hollywood told her not to go through with this marriage, and everyone who hasn't learned by now soon figured out it's almost a waste of words to tell Ms. Monroe not to do something if that's what she's got her mind set to. By nineteen fifty seven, after a couple of miscarriages, an ectopic pregnancy, a few studio battles, filming battles, and an exhausting schedule she would finally be admitted for the first time for a barbiturate overdose. It was reported that Monroe's weight would fluctuate so much from one extreme to another during this time. Costume designer for the film The Prince and the Showgirl, Beatrice Dawson, created several of her outfits in different sizes. She'd say, quote, I have two ulcers from this film, and they are both monogrammed M.M., end quote. In 1960, she would complete her last film, The Misfits, starring Clark Gable. Side note, isn't it interesting that Gable starred with both Jean Harlow and Marilyn Monroe on their last films? And then he would die too, not long after, himself. It was reported that Marilyn was so addicted to barbiturates at this time, actual filming was quite limited and the whole production was put on hold so she could go through detox. Marilyn would get divorce number three a month before The Misfits was released. It did not do well at the box office. In 1962, she began the filming of Something's Got to Give with Dean Martin as her leading man. It was to be a remake of the classic Cary Grant film My Favorite Wife. This was also meant to be the first film in recent history to have a nude scene. By this decade of blonde bombshells, it was no longer the sensuality or hint of scandal that kept the audience's rapt attention. Marilyn used nudity to her advantage and stretched the idea of what was acceptable in this decade. Only a decade before, she would have been disgraced off the screen and never heard from again. But this was Marilyn Monroe. She pushed the barrier for nudity and dared her to quote quote-unquote, competitors to follow suit. (laughs) birthday suit, that is. During the filming of Something's Got to Give, Monroe's doctors had told the producers that she was ill and requested to postpone the production. But time is money, and they pressed forward in April and then were upset when Marilyn wouldn't show up for the first few weeks. And to make matters worse, she, being as sick as she said she was, would show up, get sewn into a dress, and would sing the infamous Happy Birthday Mr. President on May 19th. To make up for her escapades, she agreed to do the nude scene first, and the studio invited press to capture the groundbreaking event. These photos would later appear in Life magazine. Shortly after, Marilyn claimed she was sick again. Fox had enough. They fired her and then sued her for $750,000. The studio attempted to replace Monroe and continue shooting, but then Dean Martin fired himself saying that he wouldn't do the film with anyone but Marilyn. So Fox sued Martin as well. And then they scrapped the whole thing. Marilyn attempted damage control by giving audience to a reconciliation with Fox and by doing some photo shoots for Life, Cosmopolitan, and for Vogue. Fate to Black Monroe was found dead in her home on August fifth, 1962. The New York Mirror would report, quote, Marilyn Monroe kills self. Found nude in bed, hand on phone, took forty pills. It's believed she died between eight thirty PM and ten thirty PM on august fourth due to a quote probable suicide. End quote. She had a private funeral on august eighth that was arranged by Joe DiMaggio and her half sister Beatrice Baker Miracle and her business manager Inez Milson. She's entombed and crypt twenty four at the Corridor of Memories at the Westwood Memorial Park Cemetery. Vogue's contributor Molly Haskell would say quote, she was the fifties fiction, the lie that a woman had no sexual needs, that she is there to cater to or enhance a man's needs. Photoplay would call her quote a national institution as well known as hot dogs, apple pie, or baseball, end quote. The American Film Institute has named her the sixth greatest female screen legend in American film history. The Smithsonian Institution has included her on the list of 100 Most Significant Americans of All Time. 1962. Marilyn Monroe was dead. Long live the legacy of Marilyn Monroe. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones. And I have to tell you, I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaign to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job, and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. This is a tragic story. There is no other way to spin it, because it's truly laced in tragedy. And it was completely her own doing. She'd say on tape for her autobiography, I am not ashamed. Quote, there's a saying among the hip set in Hollywood that if the pressures don't get you, the habits will. I guess alcohol in different forms takes the biggest toll. Narcotics create problems. Pills of all kinds enter it. Sex is a compulsive thing. They are all habits, habits, habits. I know I've suffered from them all down the line, and I have a record of 100% failure never having cured one habit in a lifetime." Stop me if you've heard this one. This is the story of Barbara Lee Peyton. She was born on November 16, 1927, in Cloquette, Michigan, as Barbara Lee Redfield. Growing up in a home with alcoholic parents and a restless soul, it's no wonder in November of 1943, Peyton eloped. She was around 16 with her then-boyfriend, a boy named William Hodge. Her parents immediately demanded that Peyton annul the marriage. Shockingly, she did. To her, it was just a spur-of-the-moment thing. Peyton really didn't want marriage. She just decided to marry Hodge, for the heck of it. She was bored. So much so, she married the next decorated combat pilot that came through Midland Army Airfield that looked her way. That would be February 10th, 1945. She would become Mrs. Barbara Payton. And her first order of business was to get to Los Angeles. John Payton would use his GI Bill to go to school, and it didn't take long for boredom to set in, so she tried her hand at modeling. In March of 1947, her modeling career was put on hold for the birth of their son, John Lee Peyton Jr. Her marriage and home life was really putting a cramp in her drive and ambition to become a better-known model and even a movie star, not to mention her desire to get out and see the new world called Hollywood. Never being exposed to the bright lights in Big City, she wanted to taste it all. She would rather go out to clubs and parties than to be home being a housewife. When asked how her parents felt about her new husband, she'd say, quote, I think they felt it would take an Air Force captain to keep me under control. Even he couldn't do it, end quote. While her marriage was ending, her star was rising. Barbara Payton would separate from her husband in 1948, and in January of 1949, she would sign a contract with Universal Studios. She was cast in her first film, Silver Butte. In 1950, she would get her first film credit in the film noir Trapped, co-starring Lloyd Bridges. This got her a screen test with James Cagney, and she was chosen to play the female lead in the noir thriller Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. Barbara Payton was launched into stardom. The movie was a box office smash, and Cagney was convinced his pick would go on to do big things. He believed in her so much, she received $5,000 per week. She would recall, quote, I just talked and stumbled around and wasn't formal, just had fun. The critics loved it. The word natural was used in all the reviews. Sure, I was scared before I went before the cameras, but it all worked out perfectly, End quote. It was an unheard of amount for a new actress with only two film credits under her belt. I can neither confirm nor deny if she had a fling with James Cagney or his brother William. But I've noticed that the more sordid reputation, the more the tabloids want to drag them down even further. Needless to say, she was romantically connected with everyone she was ever in a movie with. Take from that what you will. Trust me, the truth is painful enough. Just keep listening. She would strategically make dates and schedule meetings with those she felt who could take her career to the next level. Let's just say she took the casting couch system to a whole next level. She wasn't shy about asking for what she wanted, and she wasn't ashamed to pay the asking price for getting it. Quote, I went out with every big male star in town. They wanted my body, and I needed their names for success. There was my picture on the front pages of every paper in the country. End quote. What was so sad to me as I was researching this episode was for the longest time she actually thought she was the one with the upper hand. Sadly, it took her years and crossed over into desperation before she realized that it was she who was being manipulated. Even in the heart-wrenching retelling of her life's circumstances, she recalls things in a very slanted viewpoint. For example, she would frequent the nightclubs and one night she zeroed in on one of the RKO producers. This would begin several private nights, Peyton would agree to, in exchange for a big film role. While the exchange went on for several, uh, sessions, when she finally pressed the issue, he confessed that he was just stringing her along and that RKO Studios had no intentions of giving her a role. Ouch. And then there would be glimmers of her own honesty. Quote, I was torn between what was good for me and what I wanted. They never seem to be the same thing. End quote. Journalist Rebecca Wong would write Peyton learned the lesson the hard way that day and made a promise to herself get the role from the execs first, then go to bed with them. With this in mind, Peyton's next career move went much smoother. End quote. Eh, not exactly the lesson I had hoped for, but there it is. Whatever she did, it worked for a while. She was cast in several more films. In Only the Valiant in 1951, she would star with Gregory Peck. It would be considered a low-budget movie for which Peck disliked the script and would later label it as a low point in his career. He was not happy with the script and not happy with the cast. She would recall, quote, From the beginning, something about me made him uneasy, uncomfortable. He couldn't do his best work. One day he said something to the assistant director, It was relayed to me in the kind of diplomatic language you get in Hollywood more than in Washington. What it amounted to was this. When you are not in a scene, would you please stay off set? Your presence upsets Mr. Peck." She took it as sexual tension. He meant it as repulsion. He made it quite clear he was not a fan of hers. During a lull of movie-making, she traveled on publicity tours. In 1949, Peyton met Bob Hope, the comedian, actor, and known womanizer. Ew. Peyton again thinking that she was making all the deals hooked up with Bob Hope, and they began an affair. Hope would set her up in an apartment for a while until she wanted more. More, more, more. Those who knew about the quite open affair would claim that she would ask for more money, more jewelry, and gifts, and more of his time and would always angle for another movie role. It was never enough, so he broke things off with her in August, giving her a quote-unquote healthy settlement to end things and an unspoken agreement to keep it quiet. A biographer of hers would write, quote, It didn't stop Peyton from selling her story to Confidential Magazine in 1956, a rare breach in the wall of secrecy that surrounded Hope's sex life, end quote. Universal Studios ended up firing her because of the affair. Luckily for Peyton, her rising stardom, one way or another, meant more roles were just around the corner. She was perfectly happy dating and bedding her way to fame. On her own, her career was going nowhere, but because of her antics, she was always appearing in the papers. Rumor has it that it was her skills as a Charleston dancer that got the attention of actor Franchot Tone, they were engaged before the end of 1950. Vanity Fair writes, quote, In I Am Not Ashamed, Peyton praises the older alcoholic Tone, whom she calls a lovable, honest, irascible, masochistic man who loves beauty for beauty's sake, end quote. But then she met Tom Neal. This man was everything Tone was not. She would describe him as, quote, a beautiful hunk of man, end quote. He didn't care that she dated other men, but he did make one thing clear. He would never marry her. Payne would recall, quote, Tom didn't think he could afford a wife like me, end quote. He was probably right. I mean, if Bob Hope couldn't keep up, unknown B actor Tom Neal wouldn't stand a chance. But if there would have been one man, it would have been this man. This was the man she loved. Not for what he could do or what he could give her, but she was crazy in love with Tom Neal. Somehow, she forgot to mention that to Tone. The love triangle exploded on September 14th, 1951. After a night of heavy drinking, Tone and Peyton returned to the home they had shared to find a drunken Tom Neal. See, Tone was paying all of Barbara's bills even though she was still dating Tom Neal. Of course, Tone didn't realize he was paying both Barbara and Tom's housing. Neil would live there when Tone was out of town, and she would kick him out when Tone would be stopping by. Peyton recalls, quote, Francho tripped on one of Tom's barbells, and that did it. Not that it hurt his foot, but it was a steel reminder that Tom had been in my house. Then, atomic bombs. Francho had to be crazy drunk to throw a punch at Neil. It was like throwing a pebble at an elephant. The elephant roared and speared Franchot to the wall with his tusks. Tom threw about ten fast punches and got him a free ride to the hospital, According to biographer O'Dowd, quote, Tone's face was nearly destroyed. He suffered a concussion, shattered cheekbone, fractured jaw, and broken nose. The fight was a tabloid sensation, and Peyton, who had gotten a black eye in the fight, Egged on the paparazzi by appearing at the hospital every day in skin-tight dresses, giving flippant interviews and sneaking martinis to tone in a thermos. End quote. Not to be outdone, Neil also gave countless ill-advised interviews. Quote, I didn't do anything wrong like being named a communist. He told one publication, I just fought for the woman I loved. End quote. Plastic surgery was necessary to restore Tone's broken nose and cheeks. Miss Peyton told the press that she was going to marry Tone and leave Neal for good and on September of 1951 the two officially wed in less than 2 years the couple separated and Peyton went back to Neal Peyton and Neal capitalized on the scandal touring with a production of The Postman Always Rings Twice 53 days the marriage the winner of the spoils he that got the girl it only lasted 53 days. She said, quote, He couldn't accept me as Barbara Payton from the day of our marriage. If he could have, we might have been happy. But I was the Barbara Payton of Tom Neels, of my lovers, of my past, all of it. He hated me for what I had been and loved me for what I was. He tortured himself. I was only somebody for his doubts, fears, incriminations to bounce off. I resolved to let himself spend himself of the torture. It was endless. It built and there was no end in sight. Every part of my body reminded him of another man. It couldn't work. I agreed to give him a divorce by default. After days of wrangling and reconciliations, our attorneys agreed on a settlement, end quote. Barbara would also recall, quote, When I married Francho, I thought it would be forever. Later, when I divorced Franchot to live with Tom, I thought that would be forever, but forever is just a weekend, more or less. End quote. Side note: When Franco Tone decided to divorce her, his story is ever so slightly different from hers. He had a private detective take pictures of her having sex with other men. He then sent the pictures to all the major Hollywood studios, hoping they would ruin her career. Fifty-three days, folks. By the end of 1953. Both men had washed their hands of her and her reputation was ruined. Then just like a pack of wolves turn on their weakest member, the press lined up to blast Peyton. She was being shut out of Hollywood and it didn't even dawn on her yet. Barbara's career had plummeted to the point where she was making what I call the horror genre Red Flag, featuring Bride of Godzilla in 1951. It's the beginning of the end, folks. In 1953, she was summoned to England to play two different movies. She found several rich men to accommodate her while she was there. In 1955, she was given a part in the movie Murder Is My Beat, starring Paul Langton. It said she was drunk for most of the filming and would spend her salary on alcohol. It was around this time desperation began to sink in. She was starting to feel her foothold slip away. Remember, everyone else saw it coming, but once you start saying yes to things that had once been forbidden, the easier it becomes to blur those lines. She started racking up brushes with the law, passing bad checks, severe inebriation, drug usage, and even more. In 1956, her ex-husband and father of their son, John Lee, accused her of neglecting their son, who had been living with Barbara since he was about four. Which makes me wonder where was the child when all of this nonsense was going on? A custody battle followed, with her ex husband accusing her of exposing her son to quote profane language, immoral conduct, notoriety, unwholesome activities, and no moral education. End quote. The judge ruled in favor of the boy's father and labeled Barbara as quote an unfit mother, not to mention a thoroughly confused and misguided young woman. End quote. And then Finally someone told her the way it was. She would continue to attempt to seduce powerful men for parts until one night she made her usual offer, a part in the next film, and she would have sex with him. Well, he laid it all out for her with a counter offer. Yes, he would like to sleep with her, but there is no part coming. He would just give her money. I'm sure she probably wanted to storm out, but she needed the cash. Peyton accepted his offer. She promised herself it would be just this once, but then it became a slippery slope. And before she even realized it, she was a high-end prostitute. Quote, I had refused to look at myself as I was. Now I was being forced into it. I was a whore. I excused myself and went to the powder room where I cried in solitary. My attitude, I decided, should be, All right, I'm a whore. And by God, the men are going to pay dearly for me. End quote. She had fallen pretty far from the shine of Hollywood. Before long, she was sleeping on bus benches or alleyways. She was beaten and bruised by her tricks, and even lost some teeth in the process. In February of 1962, she would be arrested for prostitution when she propositioned an undercover cop. She continued to sleep with powerful men to hopefully get her next part. She did get her fill of drink, but there were no more parts forthcoming. Until. I don't know the particulars, but she did win a small, very small part in the movie Four for Texas. It starred Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, so maybe one of her Johns finally came through. But the part was that of a town citizen, and it was uncredited. This would be her final film. She could only sink lower. At one point, she was attacked by a drunk, and he cut her from her abdomen down to her thigh. She needed 38 stitches. She now added drug addiction to her repertoire, and her condition, missing teeth, and weight gain meant she could no longer charge a premium rate for her services. Today I live in a rat-infested apartment with not a bean to my name, and I drink too much rosé wine. I don't like what the scale tells me. The little money I do accumulate to pay the rent comes from old residuals, poetry, and favors to men. End quote. She was frequenting a bar called the Coach and Horses where ghostwriter Leo Guild would watch her come and go for a few weeks, then finally would offer her some cash for her story. He found a tape recorder she could borrow and she could take it home and say whatever she liked. Later, he would lead her with questions. Robert Polito would listen to the tapes Barbara would give to Leo and transcribe them. He'd recall, Barbara herself charted her fall as an inverse pyramid of declining cash. There was stardom and $10,000 a week. Then, all but inexplicably, no rolls. Instead, $300 gifts, tactfully deposited inside her purse by producers. Then, $100 gifts, left less discreetly on her dresser. She bounced a check at a Hollywood grocery store to purchase liquor. She slept with her landlady's husband for the rent and on Christmas Eve with an actor friend for $50. Then, $20 John's, then ten dollars. In nineteen sixty four she would be arrested for shoplifting. Quote, How or why had I fallen? She would ask rhetorically what had happened, yet somehow I wasn't ashamed. It was in the cards. I played them as best as I could. End quote. In nineteen sixty five she was arrested and charged with possession of heroin and a hypodermic syringe. The charges were dismissed due to insufficient evidence. Side note, she would spend time among crowds at film premieres and milling about outside theaters showing her films. She was also spotted at Tom Neal's trial for the murder of his wife in 1965. He was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. And to think, that could have been her. As much as she wanted to control her addictions, she had become a slave to them, and the alcohol and now heroin became as vital to her as air for her lungs. One night she was found passed out, strung out on heroin, and drunk near a dumpster on Sunset Boulevard. A woman who found her offered to take her to get help to detox, but she refused. She instead drove her to her parents' home in San Diego. I couldn't find out who the someone was, if it was a family friend or just a fan, but somehow she ended up back with her parents. The woman thought she was doing the best thing for the actress, but was in all actuality sending her to her death. Her parents had not been any less alcoholics since she had left them, and at this time Peyton joined right in. Peyton even remarked to a neighbor that, quote, I never wanted to be with them. I never wanted to see them again, but here I am and I got all the booze I want. End quote. By May 8th, 1967, Peyton's body gave up the fight. She was found on the bathroom floor where her heart and liver finally gave up. She was at her parents' house where she'd been staying for several weeks. Her son was fighting in Vietnam when she died. She was only 39 years old. The Los Angeles Times reports, quote, Barbara Peyton, the stunning blonde movie actress, whom actors Franchot Tone and Tom Neal fought for in Hollywood's most celebrated fistfight of the 1950s, died here in obscurity, end quote. Quote, I always have a little too much wine in me, but you can bet your tootsies that every word is true, end quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! In the Hollywood Book of Extravagance, author and Hollywood historian James Paris would claim that because of her hourglass figure, which is documented at 462135, if anyone was keeping track, her unique sashaying walk, breathy baby talk, and cleavage revealing costumes are what made Jane Mansfield have an enduring impact on Hollywood. Even if you've never seen any of her movies, most people can recognize her image born Vera Jane Palmer in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, on April 19, 1933. She would be best remembered as the replacement or the threat for Marilyn Monroe, meaning the studio would hire Mansfield in case Monroe was acting up. Little did they know that Marilyn pretty much had them in her pocket. Despite this initial reason for being signed with Fox Studios, Mansfield would go out of her way to become memorable all on her own using publicity stunts and taking her personal life public. Very public. After Jane's father died of a heart attack, her mother, Vera, supported herself and young Jane on her teacher's salary, but remarried in 1939. Young Jane was ravenous for information and dreamed of being on the big screen someday. She would stay active, taking ballroom lessons, piano, and violin, and she became fluent in five languages. When she was 17, in 1950, Jane married Paul Mansfield. Their daughter was born six months later. The pair would both study acting, but of the two, Jane was more aggressive about it. She would leave her family to go to California to study at UCLA, But her husband would put his foot down when he discovered she was working as a nude model and entered in to compete in the Miss California Beauty Contest. She was not a miss, and her husband rather resented that. She made no bones about wanting fame and doing whatever it would take to get there. She would later tell a reporter, quote, I decided early in life that the first thing to do was to become famous, she said. I'd worry about acting later, end quote. In 1954, she would get her first break at a screen test in April for On a Hope and a Dream. The family of three packed up and moved to Hollywood. It didn't amount to much, but in 1955, she was chosen to be Playmate of the Month in the still relatively new Playboy magazine in February of 1955. The circulation did so well, Hugh Hefner gave Mansfield the February slot for the next four years, and then again in 1960. In 1956, her husband attempted to gain sole custody of their daughter, saying she was unfit to parent because of her choice to pose nude. He was denied and also failed to have any say over boundaries when traveling with her mother, in the States or abroad. Side note, Paul might have been onto something there because after the death of ex-wife, their daughter, Jane Marie, went on to pose for Playboy magazine herself in July of 1976 issue titled Jane's Girl. This would make her the first daughter of a Playboy Playmate to become a featured Playboy Playmate. Also, she is the only model to be featured alongside a parent in the same magazine. In 1988, both Jane Mansfields would be featured in the 100 Beautiful Women issue of Playboy magazine. I feel like I need to wash my mouth out. Jane and Paul divorced in 1958. Her stunt in Playboy, which would, once upon a time, pre marilyn Monroe, normally backfire for most newcomers, but instead garnered Ms. Manfield a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. She was only given a few bit parts in movies, so she opted to accept a Broadway contract to play in the Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. Warner Brothers dropped her contract, and she continued on stage. In the same year, she would also be featured in a four-week striptease review at the Tropicana Las Vegas, which would be extended to eight weeks, making more money. For example, $2,500 per week from Fox, compared to $25,000 per week from the Tropicana. 20th Century happily picked up her contract, and she would receive her first meaty part in The Girl Can't Help It. This is the window of history when Fox was desperately trying to bring their Marilyn to heel. She was on the fringes of successful bus stop and becoming more difficult with every turn. Mansfield didn't mind being used in this way. She was getting plenty of screen time. In The Girl Can't Help It, the studio even goes for a repeat of the If It Ain't Broke option, going so far as to putting seven-year-itch star Tom Ewell with the new blonde bombshell. It worked. It was a box office hit, and Jane Mansfield was a star. The script itself was a little flimsy, but it was packed with some of the biggest musical acts of the year, so hopefully you wouldn't notice the rest was, uh, ridiculous. They even went back to the Monroe system by casting Mansfield in her first dramatic role in The Wayward Bus. I mean, it has the word bus in the title. Marilyn Monroe had bus stop. Jane Mansfield gets Wayward Bus. The system works. Plus, it got Mansfield a golden globe for her mantelpiece. She had a few other films that would be considered hits, but then the public lets studios know when they've reached their fill of the blonde bombshell era. It has been about three decades at this point, as we've seen. The sway of audiences moving on might have been in part because of Jane's off-screen antics. If Marilyn was blurring the limits, Jane happily set them on fire. Fox would offer her the bare minimum, no pun intended, to fulfill her contract, which meant a lot of filming outside of the States. In 1963, Jane Mansfield would become the first to appear in an American mainstream film, Nude. Just to back things up and to make things official, the actual first mainstream film featuring nudity would be A Daughter of the Gods all the way back in 1916. That actress was Annette Kellerman. And though in that one and only scene she is mostly covered by her long hair, it still counts. It was produced by Fox Film Corporation and would be given an astounding one million dollars for its budget, which, comparatively speaking, is about seventeen million today. And they still managed to go over budget. A Daughter of the Gods would be the last film to allow "quote unquote" superfluous nudity of a character because of the motion picture production code. That is until the 1963 release of Promises, Promises. The studio used every opportunity to publicize what they were about to do. The movie posters would show Mansfield covering in nothing but bath bubbles, announcing, quote, now see all of Jane Mansfield, end quote. Side note, never completely out of Maryland's shadow, this movie would be no different. She was cast across from Tommy Noonan, who was Marilyn's love interest in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Same system, different blonde, just add nudity. Playboy magazine photographers were invited on set to get stills for their June issue promising, quote, the nudist Jane Mansfield, end quote. And they did. The issue sold off the shelves and was even getting an astounding $10 per copy in some places. Hugh Hefner, Playboy's creator and publisher, would be arrested for the publication in Chicago, claiming the images were, quote, particularly obscene, end quote. She was, after all, lying on the bed completely naked with a fully dressed man. The charges would end in a mistrial, but the publicity was worth it. Arresting Hugh Hefner for indecency? Hello, it's 1963. Is this the first anyone's ever heard of him? Because the studio was releasing the film without the movie code approvals, they were on their own with promotions, so they used the one asset that would separate this film from any other, Mansfield's Nudity. This in and of itself would create the film to be banned in certain cities, but that only added to its allure. She would be voted one of the top ten box office attractions in 1963. In her interviews, she would claim that she had to drink several glasses of champagne in order to relax enough to disrobe. Bless her heart. But her co-stars would later share how she was perfectly comfortable walking around on set between takes, completely nude, going about her business, talking with others as if fully dressed. Her husband at the time, Mickey Hartigay, was also on set and one of the co-stars. I wonder if that made her more comfortable or less. Hoping this film would put her back in the running for a box office draw, and did it ever, but it did not save her career, which sadly spoke volumes about what the paying public really felt about her, uh, talent. Chicago Sun-Times movie critic Roger Ebert would put it in print, writing, quote, Finally, in Promises Promises, she did what no Hollywood actress ever does except in desperation. She made a nudie. By 1963, that kind of box office appeal was about all she had left, end quote. Side note, Mamie Van Doren was rumored to have been offered the role as the second female lead, but she declined. Apparently, she and Mansfield couldn't stand each other, and on a later film, Jane refused to be on the same set with her, even including it in her contract. She referred to Van Doren as, quote, the drive-in's answer to Marilyn Monroe, end quote. I guess being the indoor cinema Marilyn was of higher rank? Ah, I don't know how that works. The part of Claire in Promises Promises was then offered to Marie McDonald, whose husband at the time, Donald Taylor, was the producer, which we learned about in episode 29. That would be her final film before her accidental drug overdose. Even though Jane's big screen time dwindled, she managed to still get plenty of small screen time, the television gave her lots of opportunity to stay in front of the people. She'd make appearances on game shows, variety shows, as well as showing her acting chops in episodes of Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, Burke's Law, and Kraft's Mystery Theater. Side note, rumor has it that she was originally offered the part of Ginger Grant on the sitcom Gilligan's Island, but turned it down because she didn't want to be stereotyped. Marketing consultant Matt Park would offer his opinion as to the demise of Jane's popularity. Quote, At that time, the culture was moving from the 50s to post-Kennedy era. The entire nation was reevaluating what was ideal, what should change. The start of the anti-war, anti-military movement, the rise of feminism, these were significant shifts in the public's attitude and mindset. Mansfield never made the transition. End quote. Not seeing the massive change in market and never one to be idle, Jane was still a very popular draw in live venues. She would be welcomed in Vegas, on stage in New York, and other review venues into the late 1960s. And finally, she would do personal appearances for a whopping $10,000 per for supermarket grand openings and the like. Never shy for publicity, she would be in the press regularly through her off screen antics. Film critic Whitney Williams would write in Variety in nineteen sixty seven quote, her personal life outrivaled any of the roles she played, end quote. In april nineteen sixty seven, the Los Angeles Times wrote, quote, She confuses publicity and notoriety with stardom and celebrity, and the result is very distasteful to the public. End quote. For example, The wardrobe malfunction, that is nothing new. Ms. Manfield deployed it way back in 1955 when she was supposed to be helping fellow star Jane Russell get attention for her movie Underwater. She squeezed herself into a too small red bikini and was quote unquote shocked when it popped off when she dove into the pool. I'm sure she was quite embarrassed when the reporters just happened to be there and catch the whole thing on film. Well, that's when Playboy came a-knockin'. Her outfits were known to malfunction several times over her career. You just can't find trustworthy clothing designers these days. Side note, wardrobe designer Richard Blackwell would refuse to continue to make her clothing for just that very thing. Jane Mansfield married actor and 1955's Mr. Universe Mickey Hargitay on January thirteenth, nineteen 1958 mere days after her divorce was finalized from Paul Mansfield. It's said she picked him out while he was performing at the May West show, telling the waiter, quote, I'll have a steak and that tall man on the left, end quote. Jane would insist he be in her stage to movie Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. They would work together in three other films, and he would perform as her male lead in her Vegas reviews. Since she was under contract for the film studios, She had to keep an insurance policy on herself just in case any accidents or injuries might happen to her while her husband tossed her about for their stage performances. In 1956, Mickey's ex-wife would attempt to sue for more child support for his daughter that he had in an earlier marriage, but Jane and Mickey would attempt to claim they were practically impoverished and unable to increase his payments. Jane would complain that she had to sleep on the floor of their pink mansion because they couldn't afford to buy furniture. Well, maybe if they didn't keep filling the bathtub with pink champagne, they might have a few pennies left over for poor nine-year-old Tina. They would add three more children to the family, Miklos, Zoltan, and Mariska. Side note, Mariska would follow in her parents' performing shoes and is best known as her character Olivia Benson on the television drama Law & Order Special Victims Unit. She looks just like her daddy. Jane and Mickey spent a good bit of time in the public's eye. They would design her aforementioned mansion in Beverly Hills, complete with a heart-shaped swimming pool, and name it the Pink Palace. She also had very public affairs and was supposed to marry singer Nelson Sardelli. He would even go with her to her divorce proceedings. To make sure the divorce was good and newsworthy, Mansfield would accuse her husband Mickey of kidnapping one of their children. But the story just didn't add up, literally or financially. They attempted a Mexican divorce in 1963, but a judge refused to accept it, so they stayed together, nixing the marriage to Sardelli. The marriage would hold out long enough for the birth of their third child, Mariska, but they made the divorce final in 1964, allowing her third marriage to take place only weeks later to producer and director Matt Simber. The divorce would give guardianship of their children to Mickey, but they kept their residence with Jane. Third husband, Matt Simber, would be best known for his, um, diverse collection of films and undertakings, one of which happened to be Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling in 1986, promoting the now popular women in quote-unquote professional wrestling. There you go. A bit of wrestling trivia for my wrestling fans out there. You know who you are. Simber would be the guiding factor for her to accept the Promises Promises film and wanted to lead her career in even more down the quote-unquote tawdry angle. Actor and journalist James Bacon wrote in the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner in 1973, quote, Here was a girl with real comedy talent spectacular figure and looks, and yet ridiculed herself out of business by outlandish publicity, End quote. Simber and she were married in September of 1964 and separated by July of 1965, long enough to have her fifth child, Antonio, born in October of 1965. Side note, Matt Simber and his third wife, whom he married in 1967, would be the ones raising Antonio. I know, it all gets very confusing. Simber would later talk of her alcohol abuse and in-your-face affairs and verbal abuse. In November of 1966, her son Zoltan was attacked by a lion from a theme park, Jungleland, USA. He suffered severe head trauma and had to undergo several surgeries. Sam Brody, who was the Mansfield lawyer, would sue the park on the family's behalf and, win a large settlement and, in effect, shut the park down. At this time, her career was definitely on the wane, and it's rumored she began drinking heavily. She, and oldest child, would move in with boyfriend-slash-lawyer Sam Brody, who was known to be abusive and an alcoholic. Andrew Nelson would write, quote, Mansfield's last two years were a sad decline. The press dried up, movie offers vanished. Her days consisted of fifths and fists as alcohol and an abusive boyfriend, Los Angeles trial lawyer Sam Brody left their marks on the famous figure. Mansfield was reduced to rounds of telethons and dinner theater appearances, end quote. Brody's wife would finally file for divorce, claiming that Jane was the, quote, 41st other woman in Sam's life. And daughter Jane Marie, at the age of 16, would file a police report accusing Sam Brody of beating her and stating her mother not only knew about, but is said to have encouraged it. Jane Marie's custody was given to her father's uncle. I'm not sure why she didn't go to her father, but it might be because he actually moved on to have a happy, quiet life and preferred to keep it that way and stay on the DL. In 1966, Jane was introduced to the Church of Satan and its founder, Anton LaVey. She would be deemed high priestess of the San Francisco's Church of Satan, and Anton's daughter, Carla LaVey, would report to Joan Rivers that Jane was not only practicing Satanism, but was having an affair with her father at the time. Always looking for an angle, Jane would invite LaVey to the Pink Palace for a headline-grabbing photo shoot. In June of 1967, Mansfield was working as an entertainer at the Gus Stevens Supper Club in Biloxi, Mississippi. On the night of the 29th, after her last show, Sam Brody, her three children, a barrage of pets, and a 20-year-old driver, Ronnie Harrison, left for New Orleans, where Jane had an appearance the next day. They never made it. It was after midnight, and the car driving over the limit ran underneath a tractor trailer. The truck was spraying for mosquitoes and was hidden in the chemical fog of the spray. Harrison never stopped not seeing the truck at all. The three, Mansfield, Brody, and Harrison, were killed instantly, but thankfully the children who had been sleeping in the back seat were not injured. She was not decapitated. It has been rumored for decades that she lost her head, but while her death certificate states her skull was crushed due to impact, it was still attached to the rest of her body. Photos did show something that looked like blonde hair dangling from what was left of the front windshield, and the rest of the vehicle's roof was literally peeled back, it is believed it could be a wig, or yes, even a patch of her hair. Side note, there was a rumor circulating that LeVay wanted Mansfield to leave Brody and come to live with him, and when she declined, he put a curse on Sam Brody. Unfortunately, the curse went into effect when Jane was in the vehicle as well. Apparently, people need to be a little bit more specific before going around and putting curses on other people. A New Orleans paper would post, quote, Jane Mansfield killed in New Orleans crash. Jane Mansfield is the smartest dumb blonde of movies, personal appearances, and publicity stunts, was killed early today when a chauffeured auto in which she was riding smashed into a truck that had slowed to a crawl for an insect spray truck, End quote. It would also report, quote, her three children, Miklos eight, Zoltan Six and Mariska three were slightly cut and bruised and suffered shock. The youngsters were treated and released from charity hospital in New Orleans. End quote. Her funeral and services would be kept small and private, taking place in Pennsylvania. Some in Hollywood thought that she would have wanted to be buried in Hollywood, but instead she was buried in a small, quiet cemetery in a small Pennsylvania town beside her beloved father. Ex-husband Mickey Hargitay had a heart-shaped stone placed on Mansfield's grave inscribed with the words, quote, We live to love you more each day, end quote. Even with such a touching sentiment, Hargitay would end up suing Mansfield's estate for child support money even though he was awarded child support funds as well as spousal rewards when their divorce was finalized. He lost the suit. Following her death, her oldest daughter and third husband, Matt Simber, would file for the wrongful death lawsuits in 1968. Then, about seven people would file unsuccessful suits to gain control of her estate. Everything had to be sold due to outstanding debts, including an estate Sam Brody left Jane in his will. Sam's wife, Beverly, would also sue the estate for the property, as well as $325,000 for gifts and jewelry her husband gave Mansfield. That was settled out of court. In 1977, her four oldest children went to court to find out what happened to their inheritance. And, And I'm not sure how that turned out. In an article for Salon, Andrew Nelson would write, quote, from nineteen fifty five until the early sixties, Mansfield reigned as Hollywood's gaudiest, boldest, decupped B grade actress. The working man's Monroe, they called her, her enormous breasts and baby doll voice embodied the fifties American male fantasy of female sexuality. Curvacious, flirtatious, and grateful for a man's any man's attention. Side note. If you're wondering where the, quote, quintessential Hitchcock blonde, Grace Kelly, is, she was featured in our anniversary episode 53 of season one. Scroll back to that episode to hear a super concise telling of her, not just of her tragic story, but the legacy she left behind. Plus, I think there's seven, maybe eight other really interesting stories in that episode. And with that, we conclude the Tragic Blonde Bombshell series. Thank you for pointing out all of the ones I missed. Believe me, it was tough to narrow it down to the ones that I chose. I'll try to circle back to your favorites another time. On that note, I have been getting a few questions about offering suggestions. First of all, absolutely, yes! I love hearing your ideas of what you are curious about. I am such a research nerd, and I love learning the new stories for episodes. Second, Here are some parameters so you get an idea if it's a good fit for this podcast. The topic needs to be based in America. The event needed to happen in America or played out in America. If it's about a specific person, they can be born elsewhere or died elsewhere, but the majority of their life or their contribution to the story needs to be based in America. Next, it needs to be set in the time frame prior to 1969. Yes, sometimes if the story is so compelling or so requested, I'll slip over, but I like to keep it pre-1970. It has to be something within our Bag of Bones context. (laughs) For example, my mother keeps asking me to do an episode of Roy Rogers, but I can't because, well, his story is just so darn happy. Around here, we settle in with the dark and creepy, tragic and horrifying Throw in some peculiar traditions and folklore, and essentially you have the Bag of Bones podcast playlist. And finally, it must be based in fact. I put a ton of hours in research for each and every episode to make sure that I am giving you the most honest and up-to-date information for each subject. So if I can't find a lot of detail about something, or I can't substantiate it, then I won't be able to use it. Yes, folklore can fall into a cloudy section, but usually with this topic, enough people believe it, and there is a foundational source, like where the story began, that I can stem from. And that's it! I'll post these guidelines on both my website, elizabethbougere.com, and at theragtagnetwork.com for easy reference. Now, before you start sending me hate mail defending Roy Rogers, I love Roy Rogers, I also love all the other topics and dates and countries. I listen to other podcasts that cover all the things that I do not. But I had to set parameters, otherwise the Bag of Bones podcast would have been all over the place and not stand out in any crowd. But now when someone asks, hey, do you know of a great history podcast? Or sure, there's a million true crime podcasts out, but what about the crime of the last century? Hopefully Bag of Bones podcast is on the tip of your tongue. Yes, your requests are most welcome. In fact, the first episodes of a new season will all be requested material. So hurry up and get yours in. And that's all for this week's episode of Bag of Bones Podcast. I am so glad you're here. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.